morning, church. Good to see everybody out here this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 9. So we'll be reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. The title of the sermon is How to Pray, part 2. Last week was part 1, so this week will be part 2. And when you're at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Here's what our Lord Jesus says. He says, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you, do, if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just uh, come before you again this morning, and we ask you to be with us as we go through your word, that you grant us illumination through the Holy Spirit to where we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that we would live by what's in your word. God, that this, this text would help us all to pray better and that, Lord, it would just uh, reorient our minds on the things uh, we should be focused on, that, Lord, we will be drawn closer to you and that your word would edify us and transform us. And we pray if there's anybody that doesn't know you, you would save them today. Please remove me as much as possible. And God, just may, your, may you be glorified. May you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. Please have a seat. As I said last time, prayer is the lifeblood of the believer. It is. We need prayer desperately, and we neglect it to our own detriment. So last week, I opened with a lot of reasons why faithful prayer is so important. But we neglect prayer. A lot of us do, right? And one reason we often neglect prayer, despite its importance, is because we want to know how to pray better. Well, there's no better place to look then than Jesus' own instruction on how to pray. And that's what we started last week. Now, just by way of reminder, I've been preaching through Matthew for some time now. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever given. And we are in the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the very center of this most important teaching ever given is instruction from our Lord on how to pray. So this morning, we're just gonna continue where we left off. Uh, The point of the text all these verses, is that faithful prayer glorifies God. Faithful prayer glorifies God. And if faithful prayer glorifies God, then we should want to pray faithfully, right? Because we want to glorify him. But that begs the question, well, how do we pray faithfully? In our text, Jesus teaches us how to pray faithfully by directing us to two or toward two focal points when it comes to prayer. The first focal point is God, God's honor, and the future, right? So God, his honor, and the future. That's the first focus or focal point of this prayer that Jesus teaches us. And then the second focal point is on our needs as his people. So first on God, then second on our needs. Now in total, this model prayer that Jesus gives us, it has six petitions. We're asking for six things. The first three focus on that first focal point, which is mainly about God in the future. And then the last three cover the second focal point, which is about us and our needs. 
Now this morning, we're going to focus on the second focal point. We will look at the last three petitions. But before we pick up where I left off, I think I need to remind us of where we left off. Last time, we covered the first three petitions. We covered the first focal point of what is sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. I think we should call it the Disciples' Prayer because the Lord is teaching his disciples how to pray. And those first three petitions, they focused on God, on his honor, and on the future age when everything will be made right. And Jesus started with these three on purpose. He wants us to reorient our minds on God above everything else. He wants us to understand the present needs that we have right now. He wants us to understand those needs in light of a, of a coming reality, a reality that is more real than this present reality. If our mind is properly set on these right things, then our prayers will be a lot more faithful. And remember, faithful prayer glorifies God. So it's very important that we learn from our Lord here because there is a wrong way to pray. Go back and look at verses five through eight. Jesus gave us wrong ways to pray. He's like, don't pray like this. Well, now in our passage, he's teaching us the right way to pray. Now, last time I mentioned that this prayer, this disciple's prayer, it's a model. It's a template. It's not meant for us to pray it word for word, okay? We, we can modify it. We can use different words. We're supposed to be praying for the things that Jesus is mentioning. However, even though we're not praying it word for word, it's still important that we pay attention to the words that Jesus uses, right? We're not supposed to pray them in a mindless, repetitious way, but we should pay attention to what he's saying because what he says teaches us some very important things. Also, we need to pay attention to the order in which Jesus tells us to pray these things. There's an order to these petitions. It's all intentional. It's all very important. Now, as I mentioned, the, these six petitions divide neatly in half, three on the top, three on the bottom. Okay, the first three, they're about God. The last three, they're about us. The first three focus on the future, but they'll have implications for how we live right now in the present. And then the last three are about the present, but they'll have implications uh, about the future, right? And so I'll bring all that up as we go through it. But by way of memory, the first petition we saw last week told us to pray that God's name would be honored as holy, all over the world, God's name is profaned. Yet in heaven, as Pastor Josh was mentioning a minute ago, angels are flying around covering their faces and proclaiming holy, holy, holy all the time. In heaven, they only declare God's holiness. And then all of creation itself proclaims the glory and holiness of God. Everything that exists hallows God's name except us. Everything except humans. And that is such a travesty because we, have, above everything else, we alone are made in the image of God. We are the ones who should be honoring his name as holy above anything else. Well, a day is coming, loved ones, when God's name will be honored on earth exactly like it is in heaven. A day is coming when no one will ever profane our God's name again. A day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the lordship of God and our Savior Jesus. And that day should be our greatest desire. Why? Because the fame of God's name should be way more important to us than our own wants and needs. It should be the most important thing to us. Our first thought shouldn't be, what do I deserve? Our first thought should be, what does God deserve? What is due to our God? He 
deserves perfect honor all the time. And we should want that for him more than we want our various desires in the here and now. So when we pray this petition, when we pray that God's name be honored as holy, we're actually praying that Jesus return right now. We're praying that the perfect age to come would arrive because we know when that day comes, the resurrection of the dead comes and then nobody will be able to dishonor God's name. We're praying for the final judgment of all who refuse to honor God's name. And we should be overjoyed to see it because we want God's name honored as holy. And why wouldn't we want his name honored as holy? He saved us. If you're a believer, he saved us. He saved us when we didn't deserve it. He gave us grace. He gave us mercy. He gave us Jesus. Where God entered his own creation as a man and did everything it took to save us. How, in light of that, could we want anything less than his glory all the time? So that's the first petition. Now, this petition is naturally followed by the prayer for the kingdom to come, which is the second petition. Now, I was mentioning last week that the kingdom of God is a very complicated subject, and so I'll just briefly remind us of what the Bible teaches us. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God with his first coming, okay? There's a lot of kingdom promises that are already ours. Things like the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the ingathering of the nations or the Gentiles for salvation. Those are all end time kingdom of God promises, but they're happening right now. But at the same time, there are clear kingdom promises that are not yet here. Things like the resurrection of the dead, the eradication of sin, the final ingathering and salvation of Israel, the Messiah reigning over the earth while being on earth. Those are end time kingdom promises and they're not here yet. And so because of this, we could describe the kingdom with two terms. It's already and it's not yet. There's parts of it that are already here, but in other ways, the kingdom of God is not yet here. So when Jesus tells us to pray that the kingdom come, we're talking about the not yet part of the kingdom because the other part's already here. We're praying for the part of the kingdom that is not yet here, okay? We are asking for the return of Christ. We're praying for the perfect age to come. We're praying for the day when we will all be comforted, when every tear will be wiped away, when God dwells with man and we can see him with our own eyes. On that day, guess what? Not only will the kingdom be here, but his name will be honored as holy. So these two go together. This one builds on the first petition, and then the third petition builds on those two. It's, we were to pray that God's will be done. Where? On earth. Just like it's done in heaven. And so last time I had to explain a little bit about the will of God. It's a very complicated subject. What we're praying for here is all aspects of God's will to be fulfilled all the time. See, there's different, I guess you could say, levels of God's will. As Reformed folk, we all understand that God's decreed will is he has decreed everything that will come to pass. And what he decrees will come to pass. That is happening right now. So obviously that's not the will we're praying to come, right? If it's happening right now. There's two other uh, aspects of God's will that we find in the Bible. His moral will, where he gives us commands to obey. And his inclinational will, where he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. These aspects of God's will are defied every day by humans on earth. God commands us to live holy. Most people refuse to live as holy, okay? But in heaven, nobody defies God's will. 
And so a day is coming when everyone on earth will always obey God all the time and always do what is right. And so that's what we're praying for with the third petition. Let me ask you this. When will that happen when everybody on earth always does what's right? When the kingdom comes, right? When the kingdom comes in its fullness. It will happen when God's name is finally honored as holy everywhere. So again, each of these first three petitions are about God and his honor, but they're also about the future. They're focused on the future age when we will never hunger, we will never sin, and we will never be harassed by the forces of evil again. That's what happens when those first three petitions get answered. Now, we're going to see in a little bit that the final three petitions are about those very things, though, okay? Our, our food, we need food, um, our need for forgiveness, and our need for protection from Satan. The second half of this prayer is all about those things. But what I'm telling you is when the first three petitions are answered, those things won't matter anymore, They won't matter. When God's name is honored as holy, when the kingdom finally comes in its fullness, and when God's will is always done on earth, just like it is in heaven, you will never pray for your daily bread again. You'll never pray for forgiveness again. And you'll never pray for the protection from Satan again. And here's the point. We only pray for those things now. And that's why Jesus arranges the prayer like this. The things that we tend to think about all the time are the things that actually we, well, how do I put this? The things we tend to think about all the time are the very things Jesus is telling us they're going to pass away. They're going to pass away. So why would we obsess over those things? Shouldn't we instead obsess over the things that will last forever? What should be more important to you? Things that are temporary or things that are eternal? Let me illustrate this with an example that is absolutely absurd so we all get the point. Imagine if I could give you two gifts. That's not the absurd part, right? But imagine if I could give you two gifts and I'm good for both of the gifts. Let's say the first gift is a gift card to Texas Roadhouse for $100, right? Your family could go. You could eat a pretty decent meal that will fill you likely for one day, especially if you fill up on those nice rolls, right? That is a nice gift. Now imagine if I then said, listen... In a few years, I'm going to give you a second gift that's even better. And you're like, well, what's that gift? I say, I'm going to pay off your house. I'm going to pay off your cars, everything you owe, all your debt. And then I'm going to deposit enough money in your bank account to cover all of the meals for your family for the rest of your life. Now, which gift is greater of the two? Obviously, the second one, right? The second one is greater, okay? Imagine how silly it would look if you obsessed over the gift card and didn't even think about the second gift, right? If you believed I was actually good for this promise, then you would actually enjoy the gift card even more. When you're at Texas Roadhouse, you'd be eating that steak and you'd be like, man, this is just a tiny foretaste of what's coming. You would be thankful for every bite, imagining how much better it will be when the full gift comes. And this analogy, as dumb as it is, is infinitely small compared to what God has in store for us. This is why Jesus arranged the prayer this way. If your mind is fixed on the perfect age to come, then you will obsess less and less over the things of this temporary present evil age. In fact, you will ask for what you need and, ask, and you'll enjoy those things more because you know they aren't the big prize. See, when people are focused on this world, they obsess over these things because they think if they lose them, they lose everything. 
But we, when we're focused on what's to come, we can enjoy these things here better because we know they're not even the prize. Something better is coming. And so it puts everything in the right perspective. This is why Jesus begins with the things of God in the age to come before he brings us to our needs. And our prayers should be the same way because it will condition us to think this way. Now, each of those petitions, even though they're about the future, they do have an implication for the present. While we wait for God to cause his name to be honored everywhere, we can at least try to honor God's name ourselves right now. That's what we should be doing as Christians. We can obey his commands. We can live in a way that pleases him. We can tell everyone we know about Jesus because the more people that believe in him, the more people are honoring his name, right? So those are things we could do right now so his name would be further honored. And the same is true with the kingdom. As we wait for the kingdom to come in its fullness, we can be that salt and light that expands the kingdom like a mustard seed growing into a giant tree, How do we do that? We preach the gospel and we push for God-glorifying societies. And the more we preach and the more we push for this, we expand the citizenship of the kingdom of God as people are getting saved and entering into it. That is what we could do uh, for the sake of the kingdom right now. And then the same is true when it comes to the will of God. Let's aim to do his will on earth the best that we can. So, As we await the future version of these three petitions, we can live in light of them right now by doing those things. Now, I have just one more thing to say before getting to the final three petitions. I know this was a big review, but the most important part of the prayer is the first three. So I wanted to to hit it again. But one more thing that I want you to know about this prayer is its arrangement imitates the Ten Commandments. What do I mean? Well, we often say the Ten Commandments comes in two tables. The first four commandments are the first table, and then the last six are the second. The first four commandments are all about our relationship with God. The last six are all about our relationship with each other. So the first is about God, second is about man. Think about the first and second great commandments. What is the first greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. What's the second one? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You notice something in both cases? God first, man second. And then you go back and look at this prayer. What's the first three about? God. What's the second three about? Us, man. And so here's the thing. Here's here's what I'm getting at with this. Whether we are talking about our loves, God's commandments, or even our prayers, our thinking on all these should always be God first, ourselves and others second, right? And if we miss that, we're, we're missing a very important part of this. And again, that should make a ton of sense to us because how does this prayer begin in the first place? Our Father in heaven. God is our Father. If you're a believer, he's your Father. I explained how that all worked last week. I, can't, uh, I don't have time to go back into that today, but he's our Abba. He's our Daddy. And that's all because of the work of Jesus as our Messiah and Lord. So because of what God has done to make us sons and him our daddy, of course we should love him first and and put him first in our thoughts and and in everything. So with all that, I think I've summed up the things we saw last time in the first three petitions. So now we could turn to the rest of the prayer. Let's look at the ones that deal with us, that deal with life in the present evil age. The first of these is in verse 11. So look at verse 11 with me. Jesus tells us to pray this. He says, give us today our daily bread. Now, this is one of our most fundamental needs. 
If we don't eat, we'll die. God designed us as physical beings that derive our energy from food. So we're waiting for the perfect age to come where we'll be immortal and never have to worry about dying. We're, we're keeping our eyes focused on an age where we won't have to work hard for food. But we aren't there yet, right? So guess what? We can't escape the reality right now that we got to work hard and we got to eat. We need sustenance. Now, this isn't the most important need because Jesus tells us earlier in Matthew that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So obviously spiritual things are more important, but you cannot neglect the physical. We've got to eat. And so Jesus instructs us to pray for those physical needs. This isn't just a Thanksgiving prayer. Thank you for the food on my plate or rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. This is actually praying in anticipation, God, we need food. Please give us food. And like all the other petitions, there's actually a lot packed in these words here. For starters, notice he says, give us today our daily bread. See, in the ancient world, obtaining food and money was a daily thing. Today, we forget this because we have refrigerators so we could stockpile food. We get paid like once a month or twice a month so our money is stockpiled in our bank accounts. We could take a plastic card, go to any store, stick that card in a machine, and walk out with food that'll last us for a couple weeks. Because of this, loved ones, we have forgotten our daily dependence on God. And that's why it's important to remember this word today here. In the first century, they could not forget the word today because you got paid daily back then. You didn't have tomorrow's money today. You had today's money today. And if you didn't get paid at the end of the day, guess what? You had no money for tomorrow. And if you had no money for tomorrow, guess what else you didn't have tomorrow? Lunch. You didn't have food. And you might say, well, what if I save some money up? Are you going to be able to buy two weeks worth of food without a refrigerator? Good luck. You just wasted your money. Okay, so your ability to eat back then depended on you working that day and getting paid that day so somebody could go buy tomorrow's food tomorrow. It also depended on your employer being able to pay you. What if you worked in his field, but the employer was sick with a fever and couldn't pay you that day? You're not eating the next day. Yeah, you'll eventually get that money back, but it does you no good tomorrow. You might as well make it a fast day. Um, but the, the bottom line is, the bottom line is it was day by day that you got your food. So I think you could see why Jesus told them to pray each day for bread, for that sustenance. It's a daily thing. Now, I think it would be good if we could start thinking that way again because that kind of dependence keeps you focused on God. In our modern society, we've been able to fool ourselves with an illusion, an illusion of independence. That way we're not thinking of our utter dependence on God. But I want you to think with me. And I don't say this as a scare tactic. I just say this as a fact of reality. We are only one natural disaster away from starvation. I don't know if you realize that. Just one natural disaster. Or maybe one world war away from it. Think back to the spring of 2020. That's not that long ago, right? Do you remember what happened the first two weeks of the COVID crisis? No one could find toilet paper. Okay? The shelves were empty. I remember I got lucky and bought a box of 60 rolls on Amazon, limit one per customer, um, and that was going to cover us for a while. And that stuff was less than one ply. It was awful, okay? <laughs> now, I think a number of us, I think a number of us during those two few weeks, we probably wondered if it's going to get worse. If bottled water and toilet paper is empty on those shelves, 
What, in a couple weeks, is all the food going to be gone too? It could have. It actually could have gone that way. Thank God that didn't happen. But I bring that up because I think most of us alive in this room now have in our memory a couple weeks of our lives where our illusion was shattered. And that's good because that helps us realize, no, we need to be praying for food and sustenance every day. Another time this happened to me was back in 2008 with the banking crisis. Okay, some of you remember that. I'm sounding like one of those old people now, back in 2008. Anyhow, I chose to be a high school teacher in 2002 because I figured the state isn't going to go out of business and they're always going to need teachers. So if everything else goes bad, at least I'll still have a job. And then 2008 happens, and I was wrong, because when the banks fail, all of a sudden government's not getting its tax money. When it's not getting its tax money, it cuts the education budget. And so what did my school district do? We got to lay off 75 of you based on seniority. And you want to know the dumb thing with it? I was the first name of that 75. My buddy and I showed up to interview the same day. He interviewed five minutes before me and was the last guy on the safe list, and I was the first one on the cut list. I'm like, man, of course. But anyhow, if only I got there one minute early. No, his, his last name was one letter, but two letters before mine. He would have still won. But the point was, I'm like, where am I going to get a job now? Every district was laying people off. Um, they weren't hiring anybody new. They were preparing to have class sizes of 60 to 70 kids. Um, because where were they going to get the money? So I'm trying to think, well, now I have a family that depends on me. You know, well, what am I going to do? Well, you guys know how that story ended. Massive bailouts happened. States got more money. Budget got increased. I didn't lose my job. But there was a couple months where I'm thinking, you know what? This isn't guaranteed, is it? When I thought I picked the one job that you can never lose, boy, was I wrong. So here's my point with this. We depend on a trillion things outside of us for our food. We depend on rain and adequate sunlight, good soil, good seed, not having locust invasions like we're learning about in Joel. Um, we depend on a lot of things. We depend on a market that's not always predictable. So it does not take much to knock our system out of, out of whack. The equilibrium is very fragile. And when that happens, it forces us to wonder each day what we're going to eat. Now, we would do well to realize that for us on this side of the world, okay, well, let me put it this way, on the other side of the world, and by that I mean like the third world and stuff like that, they still think about their food daily. They're not able to stock up like, like we can. But we in the first world, we need to start thinking in these terms. We need to start thinking, God, give me today what I need. And of course, I do want to point out that this prayer does not only have food in mind. Our daily bread refers to, to food and all of our necessities that we need to survive in this world. Now, depending on what part of the world you're in, the list of necessities will be different. What you need is different here than, let's say, maybe in, in Kenya. Um, it's going to be different. And so thinking about what we need here, those are things we need to pray for. At a minimum, you need a job. You need transportation to that job, which means you likely need a vehicle and gas. You need shelter. That's not free. You need the ability to stay warm and to keep cool. You need the ability to cook. You can't drive around and get gas and go to work naked, so you need clothes. And unless you have hobbit's feet, you need shoes, okay? And so then the list keeps getting bigger. You need a way to clean your clothes, otherwise you're going to stink. And so there are a lot of things we need each day. Now, I want you to imagine what would happen if you lost your ability 
to maintain these things? What would happen if you lost your job and there's no other job available and no income at all is going to come your way? How long will your fridge keep its food? How long will your current tank of gas actually last? How long will you be able to make your current clothing last? How long will you be able to stay where you live without making payments? How long will you be able to keep your car without paying for it? My point is, it would only take a couple months for you to be ruined and destitute if you lost your your means of income. Now, I don't say all this to make us feel bad, right? I say this so that we would realize just how fragile our comfortable lives really are. It wouldn't take a whole lot to entirely disrupt it. So with that in mind then, what's my point of all this? Well, don't you think it would be a good idea in light of that reality to ask the Almighty to keep providing these things for us? It's a very good idea. It's a faithful thing to do. Do you think it would be foolish to act like he has nothing to do with it and act as if you're a self-made person? Yes, that would be foolish. Is it right to take these necessities for granted? No, but I think we do so all the time. And that's one reason Jesus is telling us to pray today for these things. Now, he commands us to pray for these things daily because it reminds us that we depend on God daily for our most basic things. But listen, some people like to fool themselves into thinking they depend on no one. Some people think like, nah, I don't depend on God. I don't depend on anybody. I'm completely self-made. But you want to know what that's like? That's like a four-year-old kid having a birthday party. And let me explain what I mean by this. The parents get the pinata all ready to go. They let all the big kids take their shot first. But what do they do to the big kids? Blindfold them, spin them a thousand times. And then they yank that rope so hard that nobody can hit that thing except a couple times. But then once it starts to weaken a little bit, all right, everybody else's turns over. Then it's the four-year-old's turn. Doesn't have to wear the blindfold, isn't made dizzy, parents are barely pulling that string, and that kid gets to hit it until that thing breaks. Everybody knows we're supposed to make the birthday boy think he broke the pinata. So he takes a couple cracks, it breaks, he looks around, I did what no one else in here could do, (laughs) right? He thinks it was the might of his swings, but the parents know better, that thing broke because they wanted it to break. Well, the person that thinks he is independent is just like that kid. I don't care if the person is filthy rich because he made a number of wise decisions in his life. Those decisions would have gone nowhere if God did not make a stable world with things like gravity being uniform. Those decisions would amount to nothing if God did not allow our brain chemistry to work in a uniform way. If he didn't leave oxygen in the atmosphere. If he didn't put us on a planet that is the right size, tilted at the right angle, spinning at the right speed, rotating around the perfect sun at just the right distance. None of that would matter if God didn't give us the gift of language and the ability to use logic and the ability to build civilizations and markets. Right? In other words, the wisest decisions any of us can make all amount to zero or nothing if the trillions of other things we have no control over were not being upheld by God for our benefit. Okay? So if that little kid was blindfolded and made dizzy and the parents were pulling that rope as hard as they could, that little kid's same swings aren't going to do anything. Right? So we depend on God for everything. We might fancy ourselves to be successful, but sorry. We're nothing without the Lord who's holding us up. So when we don't pray for our necessities on a daily basis, then we're kind of acting like the high-handed rebel that denies God's common grace. Look, praying for these things, as I keep repeating, is a reminder that we need 
of our constant dependence. It's a constant, consistent reminder that God, our Father, our Daddy, He takes care of us. It reminds us that if He does make us miss a meal for a couple days, He's got a good reason. He knows what He's doing. And at the end of the day, this is meant to remind us again just how much we depend on Him. Now, another thing worth noting about this petition is the word daily. He says, give us today our daily bread. And you might be thinking, why would you say daily if you already said today? Give us today our daily bread. Well, it's a good question, and I'm just going to give you a quick answer. It's because the word isn't really daily. Matthew made up this word. This is the first time this word appears. And the only reason we keep translating it as daily is because the King James did that. And so it's followed us. But they were debating about this word back in the early church. And I could go maybe 10 minutes into the debate, but I'm just going to give you the answer up front. This word most likely means tomorrow. Give us today our tomorrow's bread. Okay, give us today our tomorrow's bread. It's the idea where we're asking God today to to provide for us what we're going to need for tomorrow. Now, that's not the same about worrying about tomorrow, which we're going to be told not to do. Okay, we seek first the kingdom. Tomorrow will take care of itself. But today we're praying to God for tomorrow's bread. We got today's bread. We're praying for tomorrow's bread. This is a throwback to Exodus chapter 16 when God miraculously provided manna, heavenly bread for the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. He only gave them enough bread for each day. What happened if they tried to do, take more than one day? It fell apart and molded, except on Friday. On Friday, he would give them enough for two days. He gave them tomorrow's bread and it wouldn't spoil. Why? What was tomorrow if it's Friday? Sabbath, Shabbat, right? And so the idea is we're asking God to give us what we need for our work and for our rest, to give us what we need. And of course, Israel never missed a day of food, but they were always grumbling. We're not supposed to be like that. And if they were in the habit of praying, for God, praying to God for our bread every day and our needs every day, maybe we won't be like them. Maybe we won't grumble, especially if we're keeping our eyes fixed on the day to come. And there's one more thing that, uh, that I should say about this. Remember how the first three petitions are about the future, but they have some implications for the present? And this one's about the present? Well, it does have an implication for the future. Because you know what? When we're praying about food, when we're praying about feasting, when we're praying about bread, and we're praying about tomorrow's bread, we're also praying about tomorrow, 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 tomorrow's bread. And what I mean by that is the great banquet of the Lord that the book of Isaiah promises, that the book of Revelation promises, the one that Jesus reminds us of in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. He says, I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What a day that'll be. A day is coming when we will feast with the Messiah and all the biblical heroes. We will be resurrected. Food will be a plenty, always. And so we're praying, God, give us that today. God, yeah, give us tomorrow's bread today, but even better if you give us that banquet today. Because if you give us that banquet today, guess what? We're resurrected. We don't got to pray for food anymore. Okay, so again, our prayers for the now are still also fixed on the future. What a day that will be when we never have to worry about food again. So when we ask for our food today, it's with hope and an anticipation of that future. It goes back to what I said earlier. These prayers in the present are supposed to be overshadowed by our hope in the future. That future hope reminds us that it is only for a short while that we have to keep praying for tomorrow's bread today. 
So there's two things I want you to always have in your mind when you're praying this particular petition. First, remember what Jesus said in in verse eight. He said, the Father already knows what you need before you ask him. So when you're praying, you know he already knows he made you as a creature that needs food. He's gonna give it to you. So just pray with that confidence that God made you that way. He knows what you need. And then second, pray with the posture of hope. God will give you what you need each day to make sure you get to the final day. That's what this is all about. So learn to see your daily needs as just that, the things that you need to get you to that final day. And then once you get to that final day, you don't need those things anymore, right? It's like, it's like if you need a boat to get to the other side of a big lake, but you're never gonna come back again. Once you get to the other side of that lake, you don't need that boat anymore, right? These things we're praying for every day are like that boat. It's to get us to the point when we will never need them again. So if we could pray like this, It shows a heart of childlike dependence on our Father. And it also reminds us that, listen, we're alive right now to serve God and to serve his kingdom. You need your daily necessities so that you could do the work he called you to. Why wouldn't he give you what you need to do his work? If you join the army, you don't got to bring your own gun, okay? They're going to provide you the gun, the ammo, and the training. Well, you've been drafted into God's army. He's going to give you what you need. Okay, just pray for it. You could pray with faith. You could pray with confidence and hope. So clearly, one of the biggest concerns based on that petition is our daily necessities. But as I said, it's not the most important. We have an even greater need. One preacher put it this way. He said this. He said, if we are not pardoned of our daily sins then all that daily bread we filled our bellies with through our whole lives only fattens us for the slaughter. Like, ooh, well put. In other words, we have a much bigger need than food. We need forgiveness. And we need forgiveness every day. Why? Because we sin every day. We sin every day, therefore we need forgiveness every day. So let's look at verse 12. Jesus tells us to pray for it. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So what good is it to have riches in this world, all the food you could eat, the finest clothes money could buy, but then you go to hell? None of that will do you any good for the long run, okay? So we need to be, our greatest need is forgiveness. Now we have to remember, Jesus is is teaching believers how to pray, okay? He's not talking specifically to unbelievers here. He's teaching believers how to pray. We as believers, we are those that already know that God is our Father in heaven, We are the ones who already believe his name should be honored, that his kingdom will be amazing, and that his will one day will be done down here in uh, in perfection. We know that this all-powerful, all-consuming fire that we call God, we know he already saved us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, as humans, all humans lack two things that we need in order to live forever in God's presence. First, We need a record of perfect righteousness where we have obeyed all of God's commands all the time. Second, we need a perfect record of never sinning. Have any of you met those two conditions? Yeah, I didn't think so. None of us. We have missed that by an infinite distance, okay? Well, in Jesus, God the Son became a man. He earned that perfect record of righteousness for us, and he gives the credit of it to everyone who repents, which means they turn away from their sins, and they believe on him. 
Jesus then, as the perfect and sinless man, also traded places with us as our substitute and paid our penalty for us on the cross. He died for our sin, and then he rose on the third day with indestructible life in total victory. When you believe, you are forgiven because he paid your debt, and you are declared righteous with his own righteousness. So those two requirements are given to us by faith in Christ, all because of the work of Christ. Okay, that's what we as believers know. We are also in this process united with Christ, as I mentioned last week, which then brings us into union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So because of this great salvation, we love God above all. We want his name to be honored as holy. We want his will to be done on earth. But we look in the mirror and realize despite all the good that he has done for us, we have failed to honor his name and we fail to do his will. We love him, but we sin against him. And this should burden our heart. If you're a believer, it does burden your heart. See, when, when we truly want most what God deserves, then we want him to be perfectly honored. But every time we sin, we realize we're the ones who are adding to the dishonoring of his name. And we're the ones who've been saved, yet we're the ones who are doing this. So we hate it. And that's why we pray for the first three petitions, because we await that day that the kingdom will come and we will never sin again. Oh, what a day that will be. But alas, today is not that day. Today I've sinned. Today I've sinned. Today you've sinned. Today we have let him down. Therefore, my greatest need today is his continued forgiveness. And he gives that forgiveness to us continually. Let me uh, share with you 1 John 1, 9. Most of us know this verse. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that's present tense. That's speaking of the regular life of the believer. We're to be continually, daily, as Jesus is teaching us to pray here, confess our sins to him and God will forgive us. So one of the greatest needs that we have right now is that constant forgiveness. Now, I think it's interesting how Jesus in our text describes sin. Notice what he calls it. He asks us to ask God, or he commands us to ask God to forgive us our debts. Listen, he's not talking about money. The reason I know that is in verses 14 and 15, he comes back to this issue and gives a little more explanation. It makes it clear he's talking about sins or offenses. And remember what I said last week, Jesus will teach this prayer again to the disciples in Luke chapter 11, and when he teaches them again, in this part of the prayer, he uses the word sin, not debt, okay? So he's not talking about money. He, he's, he's, not, he's talking about sin, but here, in this time he teaches the Lord's prayer, he compares it to debt to teach us more about what sin really is. Now, the word sin literally means to miss the mark. It means to fail to do what God requires of us. Related to the word sin is this other word, trespass, which means to cross a boundary or a line that God forbids. And related to both of these is another word we use a lot, iniquities. And what that means is that means to defy God's moral standards. Sin is all of that. It's missing the mark. It, it, they're all talking about the same thing. And when you miss the mark, when you defy God's moral standards, it puts you in infinite debt. To God. How so? Somebody might be thinking, well, why? How does sin put us in debt? Well, I want you to think about how our society treats crime. 
Let's imagine a criminal does something pretty bad, gets convicted, and he gets sentenced to 10 years. Let's say he serves the 10 years of prison and he gets let out. Why is he released? Think of the language we use. We say he has paid his debt to society. Why do we talk that way? Why do we talk that way? Why do we consider his sentence a debt that he had to pay? Well, it's because his crime was against humanity. It was against our social order. It took something from from us. Therefore, the sentence was to inflict a punishment that equaled the severity of the crime. The sentence or punishment is the payment of that. And until it's paid, the criminal still owes that debt to society. But once it's paid, we say the person's free because the debt has been paid. Where do you think we as humans get this idea? Why do we all see crime and punishment that way is a debt because we're made in the image of God and we intuit this idea from him because we know our sin puts us in debt to him. People blind themselves to this, but come on, we speak this way every day. We intuitively know this. Well, here's the problem. Sin is a crime, but it's a crime against the almighty God. He is all powerful, all good. He's majestically holy and he's infinitely just and he hates sin. He's an infinite being with infinite dignity. Therefore, your sins, even if they seem small to you, they are of way way greater severity than any crime against society. Why? Because the victim in this case, being God, is greater than anyone in society. A crime against other people is bad because they have dignity and they're made in the image of God. And our society is dignified because it's made up of people made in the image of God. But our dignity is not infinite. That is why our punishments we could dole out aren't infinite. We're not infinite beings. We can't dole out infinite punishments. We don't have infinite dignity, so we can't dole out infinite punishments. Therefore, every punishment we dole out as humans comes to an end. Eventually, somehow the debt gets paid. But when it comes to a sin against God... You have committed rebellion and treason against an infinite being with infinite dignity. Therefore, your debt is infinite. And the only way a finite being could pay off an infinite debt is to be paying it forever and ever and ever and ever. That is why eternal punishment lasts forever. People at times act like they don't understand why, but yes, they do. Deep down in their heart of hearts, they know. They know because we intuit this as well. I've given this example. If I punch a random person, I'm going to get a fine. If I punch a police officer, I'm going to get prison time. If I punch the president, then you're probably never going to hear from me again. And yet the act is the same in all three cases. It's just a punch. But why does the punishment go up? Because the dignity of the office of the person being punched. What dignity is there greater than God's? None. So when you sin against one of infinite dignity, the punishment, the the, the payment Again, it's infinite, so, and we can never pay it. So clearly, our greatest need then, as humans, is forgiveness. Now, as believers, we've been forgiven because Jesus paid the full debt on the cross for us. And why could Jesus pay the full debt for us? Because he's the God-man. Scripture presents him as 100% God, and he added humanity to himself, and so he's 100% God, 100% man, both natures subsisting in the one person, the second person of the Trinity. As God, Jesus has the infinite dignity to pay the infinite debt. No regular man could do that. But as a man, he could identify with us in our place and take the penalty since we share the same human nature, right? Only the God-man can save us. 
Only the God-man could remove our biggest problem, our sins. This is why it is not arrogant when we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. It's not that we're being cocky. It's not that we think we're smarter than everybody. It's this. You could follow Muhammad. You could follow Plato. You could follow Buddha. They're not God, and they're not man, and they're sinners too, and their bones are in the ground. They cannot solve your problem. There's only one person who has ever been God and man, and that's Jesus. And so only Jesus, is the, he's the only way to be saved, right? It's, it's that simple. There is no other way. And you can't save yourself because a finite being can't pay off an infinite debt, okay? So, as, so unbeliever, that's your only hope. Now, as believers, we've already clung to that hope. We've received Christ. We've been forgiven. But then Jesus here is telling us to still ask for forgiveness every day, just like we're asking for food every day. And we know that, that God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us because we're in Jesus, and Jesus paid our debt. That's why God's always going to forgive us. No real believer will refuse to ask for forgiveness. We know we're guilty. You're not going to say, well, I already asked him 20 years ago. I don't have to ask him again. Did you sin today? Yeah. Did you sin yesterday? Yeah. Well, come on. Don't you feel bad about that? Ask for forgiveness every day. If you're going to ask for food, definitely need to be asking for forgiveness. We know we're guilty. Our sin dishonors God's name. We poorly reflect his kingdom and we defy his will. Our hearts should be burdened by that. And we should pray for forgiveness with the full confidence that we know we're going to get it because he promises it. That's how great the work of Christ was. Now, for unbelievers, the only way you could be forgiven is the same way as we who believe. You must turn from your sins and you must believe on Jesus with all your heart. You must surrender to him as Lord. Then you also will be saved. Remember, our greatest need is to have that infinite debt forgiven. So I do pray that you will believe on Jesus today and be forgiven. For the rest of you, don't get your hopes up. We're nowhere near being done. But for the unbeliever, well, we're getting there. Anyhow, for the unbeliever, turn from your sins, believe on Jesus, and be saved. I'll come back to that again at the end. But at this point, we need to take one more look at verse 12, because there's another part to this that I haven't talked about yet. We're supposed to pray, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice that second half. It assumes that we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. Jesus will not allow you to hold grudges, especially if you are a Christian. If God, who is way more offended at sin than you can ever be, if he could forgive you of an infinite debt, then who the heck would any of us think we are to withhold forgiveness of others? May it never be. You are nowhere near as offended by sin as God is, yet because you sin every day. You swim in it. We all do, right? Furthermore, your dignity is not infinite. You forgiving others is infinitely smaller than God forgiving you. So, and after the, this prayer is over, Jesus is going to come back to this in verses 14 and 15, just to make it clear what he's saying here. Because somebody might say, well, he doesn't say I'm going to go to hell if I don't forgive people. And so, you know what? I know he says, forgive us as we've forgiven others. I'm not going to forgive others, but God, I still want you to forgive me. Well, verses 14 through 15 is going to remove that option for you. In fact, even though verse 13 comes next, I want you to skip with me to verses 14 and 15. Since they're talking about the same thing, let's just knock those verses out right now. 
Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. What more can you say? If you say you're a believer, but you don't forgive others, then you're not really a believer. You're not saved. That's what this is saying. If you refuse to forgive, then you're not forgiven. Why? Because God will not be mocked. He forgave you an infinite debt, and he only asks you to forgive a tiny debt in comparison. I don't care what the person did to you, and I'm assuming it was pretty bad, but since your dignity is not infinite, and since you're not infinitely holy and infinitely offended at sin, their debt to you is tiny compared to your debt before God. Listen, later in Matthew 18, Jesus will teach this with the parable where a king forgives a man 10,000 talents, but then that man refuses to forgive another man 100 denarii. The king hears about it. He has that original man locked up for the rest of his life. Now, I'll be preaching it in a lot more detail when I get there, but one talent was a monetary unit equal to 20 years of work, 6,000 days of work, okay, which would be 20 years of work. This guy was forgiven 10,000 talents, which means he was forgiven 200,000 years of work. Now, you live at most 100 years. You can't pay off a 200,000-year debt in 100 years. This debt was impossible, yet in the parable, the king forgives it. But then this guy finds a guy who owes him a couple months worth of money. He chokes the guy and then throws him in prison, okay? And so then Jesus says, all right, that guy loses his forgiveness then. The king puts that 10,000 talent debt back in his account and the guy gets locked up. And the interesting thing, as big as that gap is, 200,000 years worth of work versus a couple months, that's still nothing compared to the infinite debt you owe God that he forgave you of and the tiny debt that others might owe you because of their sin. If you are a believer, you must forgive others. If you say it's too hard, therefore I refuse, then again, you're not a real believer unless you repent of that. And how do I know that the it's too hard excuse doesn't work? Because the disciples tried that already, right? I'm not going to read it, but you could write it down and go look it up yourself. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 10 is a fascinating account Jesus tells the apostles that they have to forgive people as many times as they ask for it. It doesn't matter if they keep committing the same sins. If they come and ask for forgiveness, you have to forgive them. You know what their response was to Jesus? It wasn't, aye, aye, Captain or Roger. It was, Lord, increase our faith. Meaning this is too, too hard. If you're telling us we have to keep forgiving people, increase our faith. And then Jesus is like, let me tell you a parable. And he tells a parable about slaves who don't feed themselves before they feed the master. They feed the master, then they take care of themselves, and they don't pat themselves on the back and say, wow, we did a good job taking care of the master. Instead, they say, well, we only did our duty. It's our job. And it's, it's fascinating. Why tell that parable when they ask him to forgive, increase their faith to forgive people? His point is, I don't need to increase your faith. This isn't a matter where you need more faith. You just need obedience. Just like the slave says, I serve the master because it's my job. You forgive people because it's your job. You've already been forgiven of so much. You do not need more faith to forgive people. You just need obedience. I find that, to, again, to be a fascinating account in the gospel of Luke. We've been forgiven of so much more. It's our duty to forgive others of so much less. 
One of my, uh, my teachers in biblical counseling put it this way. He said, we who are the most forgiven of people should be the most forgiving people or most forgiving of people. And I'll teach a lot more on this when I get to Matthew 18. But it, but it goes without saying that the forgiveness that God gives to us, it should so overwhelm us and so change our hearts and the way that we think that we can't help but to forgive people of their sins. Now, the subject of forgiveness is bigger than I could cover today. Uh, Christ's point is not just forgiveness in our text. He's telling us to pray for necessities, to pray for, for forgiveness, and to pray for uh, for, uh, for protection, right? And so, so the thing is, I, I'll cover forgiveness more in depth, as I said, when I get to Matthew 18, but I think we've, we've got enough right now, okay? As we await the kingdom, right? As we await the kingdom, what life is like for us right now is the constant need for necessities and the constant need for pardon and to be pardoning and forgiving others. We need food, we need forgiveness, and we need to be forgiving people. But I will add one more thing to this forgiveness um, subject before I move on. There are two levels of forgiveness when it comes to each other, okay? And so Ephesians 4.32 commands us to forgive others just as God in Christ forgave us. Now, those words, just as God in Christ, are very important words. They're huge. God doesn't forgive everybody, right? He does not forgive those who do not confess and repent of their sin. The unbeliever that dies in his sin is going to be condemned forever. We are forgiven because we confessed our sin to God and came to faith in Jesus. That is the just as God forgave us in Christ Jesus. So what if a person sins against you and yet they refuse to acknowledge their sin and they refuse to ask for forgiveness. Can you forgive them just as God in Christ forgave you? And the answer is no. No, because the way God in Christ forgave us is by us confessing, repenting, and and so forth. But here's the thing. Just because you can't forgive them that way doesn't mean you get to hold a grudge. You are not allowed. You are commanded to love them and to pray for them and to continually explain to them their sin and to appeal to them to repent. But until they do repent, there is a wall erected. There is a barrier that that hinders your relationship. Before we came to God in faith, there was a wall that separated us from him. When we confessed and repented and believed that wall was knocked down, we're in fellowship with God. This kind of forgiveness always ends in fellowship between the two parties, okay? But if somebody will not confess and acknowledge their sin, you could still be praying for them and loving them and so forth, but that wall's still up. You can't have the fellowship and the reconciliation. I call this horizontal forgiveness. This kind of forgiveness can only be done if there's confession and repentance. But there is a second kind of forgiveness that I'll call vertical forgiveness, and you are required to do that whether they repent or not. This is where you forgive them before God regardless. As I said, you refuse to hold the grudge. You ask God to not hold their sin against them, but that he would move them to repentance. You refuse to be bitter. You refuse to hate. You don't call them names and dehumanize them because you're ticked off at them. That is evil. You refuse to retaliate. When Jesus was on the cross, he asked the Father to do what to those who were crucifying him? As they were nailing him to the cross and insulting him, Father, forgive them. 
because they don't know what they're doing. And I once heard a preacher say, we don't have to do that. This is something we can't possibly understand. That's Christ. And what he was saying is, is just so beyond our experience and what we could. I'm like, are you serious? Who are we commanded to imitate? And what do we see the first Christian martyr do in Acts chapter 7? When Stephen was being murdered with stones, God do not hold this sin against them. That is vertical forgiveness. We are all supposed to forgive like that regardless. We can't have a restored relationship until they repent. But we could forgive them, love them, pray for them, and so forth. And then continually be trying to move them towards the horizontal forgiveness. Because once they ask us for the forgiveness, we have to forgive. Again, if you refuse, you have a bleak eternal future is all I'm saying. So, anyway, all that covers the second petition. God, forgive us, help us forgive others, okay? Well, this second petition, we're asking God to forgive us of the sins we've already done. When we go to the final petition, now we're asking God to guard us from the sins we haven't done, to to prevent us, to guard us from future sins. Look at verse 13. Jesus tells us to pray this. He says, and do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Look, we're in a spiritual war. And our enemy is more powerful than us. He just is. Right now, in our fallen immortal state, the fallen angels are way more powerful than we are. And they have been helping to trap people in sin and make them fall for thousands of years. Okay, this is, that, that, that is, they're experts at it. Okay, experts. It's what they do. On our own, we can't possibly win against them. But we are promised as Christians that he who's in us, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who's in the world, which is Satan. And so we need to have that childlike dependence on God. Just like we have it for bread and forgiveness, we need to depend on him for protection. Because if you're walking around thinking you don't need protection from the evil one and and all the things out there that, that set traps for us, you are in for a fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, if somebody thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Okay, that is, that is the reality of it. Okay, we need protection. We need to be praying for protection every day. The chief of our spiritual enemies is Satan. Jesus calls him the evil one here. And we are asking God to deliver us from him. And this makes sense in light of how he's described elsewhere in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober and alert. Be sober-minded and be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he could devour. That's what the world's like right now. So yes, we need to be praying for deliverance. First, we say, don't lead us into temptation, meaning uh, we're asking God not to allow us to walk into the traps. Give us discernment so we could see where the traps are and we don't just walk into them. But guess what? Sometimes we are gonna walk into those traps. And so once we're in there, we've been led into that temptation by our own doing. Our next prayer is deliver us from the evil one. Okay, now we're in it, deliver us. Don't let us fall this way. Show us both how to endure and how to escape. Now listen, the Bible tells us that God never tempts us, but God does test us, right? He lets tests come our way. But Satan, his minions, and our sin nature will turn these tests at times into temptations. Doesn't matter though. If you are a believer, God promises that he makes it possible every single time for you to be victorious in that temptation. 
Paul the Apostle tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not let, allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. That's a promise. That means there's never a time where you, where you can say, well, I just had to sin. There was no way out. No, what this tells me is there's always a way out. Okay, if, if, if you're focusing and, and, and being disciplined, you won't walk into those valleys of temptation. But once you're there, he gives you the way out. So we are to be praying every day that we, we see those ways out and that he delivers us. But you might say, you might be thinking, well, what if I fail? Go back to number two. God, forgive me of my debts as I forgive others. So again, we're to press on so we don't sin. But when we do, we ask for forgiveness of that sin. Okay, very, very simple. And as we press on and as we discipline ourselves more, we can have the same confidence that the Apostle Paul has here in 2 Timothy 4.18. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. And that's just an amazing confidence that Paul has, he's essentially saying the same thing. Lord, rescue me from every evil work. Get me to the finish line, which is your heavenly kingdom. And that's what God is doing here. He's getting us to that, that finish line. He's promised us in other places that if we resist the devil, he'll flee. We have everything we need. We just need to be praying every day also for God's protection. So summing up these last three petitions, these are things that we desperately need as we are trekking through this present evil age. These are things that we only have to worry about right now, toiling for food and battling sin. We need provision, we need constant forgiveness, and we need divine protection so that we will make it to the finish line. And let me remind us what a finish line it will be, a world where we see God with our own eyes, a world where there is no more sin, no more death, no more curse. A world where we have indestructible bodies incapable of sinning. A world where we never have to say goodbye to anyone ever again. A world where no enemy exists that we need protection from. But even if there were one, we'd be powerful enough to beat them up so we still wouldn't need protection because we're going to have glorified bodies. That's what's coming for us. A world where the nations no longer rage, but the nations in Israel worship our king together in perfect harmony. Loved ones, that lasts forever. And that is why our eyes must be fixed on that perfect age to come because it helps us remember that the daily grind that we now experience will soon be eclipsed by something so much bigger. So pray for what you need in this daily grind, but take cheer, because like our Lord, we will overcome the world. And before I conclude, just one more thing. If you have a King James Version, there's another verse, a doxology that says, you know, thine is the kingdom and the power forever and ever, right? The reason why that is not in your ESV or your CSB is because it's not, it's not original. It wasn't in Matthew, okay? Uh, but it is an ancient prayer. You can find it in some second century documents, not second century copies of Matthew, but it is an ancient Christian doxology. It's likely adapted from Chronicles. And so all I'm telling you, you might be like, who skipped a verse? No, I didn't. Some scribe added it. But, but it is a biblical doxology. If you want to add it to your prayer, it's awesome because as I said, it's an adaptation of something David uh, prayed in Chronicles. But if you're looking for an exposition, I shall not exposit a verse that existeth not in the Texas. So anyhow, 
as we wrap up this morning, as we wrap up this morning, don't forget that, again, Jesus is showing us how to pray. He's telling us what to pray, what order we should be praying for these things. And so this disciples' prayer, again, it's a template. And it would be silly to hear all of this and then just toss it to the side and pray in any old way. Honestly, this is the the best model possible. And it beautifully absorbs all the other helpful ways to pray. For example, you often hear us recommend that you pray the Psalms, and sometimes the the person that leads us in corporate prayer prayer will pray a Psalm. And that's awesome because the Psalms are Holy Spirit-inspired prayers, okay? But you might be wondering, well, how can I pray the Psalms if I'm following this model prayer? Very easily. Think about it. Remember, it's not word for word. We're praying for these things. One of the petitions we're supposed to pray is for forgiveness, When I feel especially burdened by a particular sin, I'll pray Psalm 51. What better psalm is there to lead your prayer when asking for forgiveness? When I'm praying for God's kingdom to come, I could pull out Psalm 2, and I could pray that. When I want to focus on my Father being in heaven, I also picture His Son, my Lord, at His right hand, so I could pray Psalm 110, verses 1 through 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. When I'm tired of the spiritual war and I just don't have the right words to ask for forgiveness, I could say, deliver me from the evil one. And yeah, I will pray that. But if I want more, I got Psalm 121, which is an extended prayer of asking God for help and deliverance. When I grow weary of this present evil age and have a hard time picturing the perfect age to come, I could pray Psalm 46, where it tells me even if the mountains are thrown into the sea and the ground dissolves beneath my feet, there is a river that makes glad the city of God. And that is a kingdom that cannot be toppled, right? There are Psalms that we could attach to this. This prayer that Jesus gives us is the one ring to rule them all. And then all the other ones can be beautifully absorbed into this and we could have some really faithful and robust prayers, prayers that glorify God and strengthen us. So may we be those who pray like this. May we be people that pray faithfully every day. It will bring us closer to our Lord. And again, if there's any unbelievers here, I've already explained to you how salvation works. You owe God an infinite debt. Only a God-man could pay that debt. The God-man did pay that debt. You simply have to turn from your sins and surrender to Jesus and believe in him as Lord. If you do, you will be saved. If you refuse, then one day you will be forced to pay that infinite debt forever and ever. We don't want that for you. So turn from your sins and believe on Jesus today. We're going to pray, and while I'm praying, you could be praying to God that, hey, I'm turning from my sins, and I believe in you, Jesus, and you'll be saved. And then afterwards, you could come up and talk to me or any of the leaders, and we'll walk you through uh, what comes next. But that being said, we're going to pray, and then we will partake of the Lord's Supper together. Let's go to the Lord.